Let us begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you again for bringing us together to share our understanding of Scripture and how the foundations of Christianity really lie in the heart of Judaism. So help us to then to understand the problems that the Jewish people went through, particularly in the early days, and now have uh, blossomed out into what is Christianity, and yet the Jewish people are still searching. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Today we're going to uh, talk about another milestone now in the growth of Judaism from the time of uh, Abraham and then to Moses and now the transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua and the crossing back into uh, the promised land. But before I get into the subject of today, there's a couple things I want to talk about relative to uh, last week's class. Uh, we did touch on it, and I'm thankful to Kachita for reminding me, uh, about the Ark of the Covenant and the importance that it was to the Jewish people because not only the Ark itself, which was commanded by God to Moses to be built, and it was built in perhaps some crude style out in the desert because the uh, gold and the other jewels, etc., that it's endowed with at a later date certainly weren't available in the desert, nor the technique to apply it. <clears throat> but the Ark of the Covenant in itself was extremely important because it represented God among his people. And that's the way they looked at it. And from that, Christianity, and particularly Catholicism, adopted the same idea. Our tabernacle in the back of the, or behind the altar here, and in other uh, churches, it is sometimes in a separate sanctuary or a separate chapel. Uh, nevertheless, it has the same meaning. It is to hold the consecrated body of Christ, the consecrated hosts that remain from the Mass. The same way is the bread that was consecrated by Christ at the Last Supper represents his body. He tells us, this is my body. Remember, he had been talking about this throughout his three years of public ministry, about he being the final offering to God the Father in reparation for the sins of all mankind. Uh, and when it came down, you know, he would talk about Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, uh, you will not have life in you, particularly in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. 
And a lot of people couldn't accept that because they were thinking of eating his arm or his, you know, whatever. And uh, that kind of turned them off. Finally, at the Last Supper, he says, this is my body. In other words, he consecrates the bread of the Last Supper. And we have the reenactment of that in every one of our masses. This is my body, meaning the body of Christ. And this is, <coughs> is my blood, the blood of salvation. And unless you eat and drink of this, you cannot have life in you. And that is why Christianity, particularly Catholicism, should be appreciated above all other possessions because it is God within us. And our tabernacle that is situated in every single uh, Catholic church represents God within his people. So keep that in mind. It is more than just a little box sitting up there. Uh, and if you are from St. Rose Parish, and I would hope that all of you would have an opportunity uh, excuse me, to visit St. Rose Parish to see where the tabernacle is. Pardon me. The tabernacle is built right into the back wall. And above that is the most beautiful stained glass window. But the formation of that window is created in a very unique way to form the burning bush of Genesis, where Moses encounters God for the first time. That whole back uh, wall, really, has this burning bush built into the wall <coughs> to represent the burning bush of the Moses scene in the desert. So I would hope that you would have an opportunity to see that. But more importantly, to remember that the tabernacle represents God within his people. Now, as you go forward and reading the first book of Samuel, you'll see the very interesting story of how the Ark of the Covenant, uh, this most sacred possession of the Jewish people, was captured by the Philistines and used not only uh, as a trophy in one respect, but as a pawn in another. And finally, how it was returned to the Jewish people because everyone of the Philistines that touched it uh, experienced some misfortune. Another thing that I wanted to talk about uh, that is really, or should have been talked about last week, was the dietary laws. The dietary laws of the Jewish people, and you've all heard of, of those, particularly the uh, prohibition of eating uh, pork of any kind, etc., and so many other things, not, uh, not uh, intermingling meat with dairy products and so forth and so on. Most of those dietary laws began as simple common sense rules in the desert at the time of the wandering. 
remember there was no refrigeration in those days. The dietary laws were set up beginning with Moses, but not just there. They went on over the period of a long period of time, I should say. And they weren't really cataloged into any form of law and never have been any part of the Torah. You won't find them. There's a crude reference or a brief reference in uh, the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel where his hip was uh, wrenched, you might say. And from that time on, uh, the Jewish people never uh, would indulge in eating any uh, hip meat of any animal. And that's, of course, where we get our delicious ham from, you know. Okay? Um, but the dietary laws were not set up as religious laws. They were set up as common sense health and hygiene laws. But over a period of time, they took on a religious significance. And gradually, again over a period of time, they became part of the religious laws, particularly in the writing of the Talmud. But the Talmud, even though much of the Talmud began uh, verbally back in the 5th or 6th century B.C., when the Jewish people were exiled to Babylon, and they developed over a period of a thousand years so that in around the 5th or 6th century A.D., they started to be written down. That's when the 613 laws of the Jewish faith were actually written down and developed into such minute details to the point where you could hardly breathe uh, without... Um, failing to observe one of the, the rules. Those were not set up by Moses or God. They were not set up really by any of the followers of early Judaism. They were set up primarily by the subsequent followers long after the Babylonian exile ended in 539 B.C. Okay. So, kind of keep that in mind. Sometime we would, uh, I would love to go through the Talmud, but the Talmud, uh, which is the Jewish holy book, it is sort of a combination of our catechism and commentary. Uh, but it's about that long, you know, if you put it all together, uh, if, if not more so. Uh, all right. Another thing that I really want you to constantly keep in mind, and for any of you who were in Mass this morning, uh, there was a, a great example of this in Paul's letter to the Galatians, regarding how the Jewish people looked at everything from a mindset of the flesh. And Paul constantly refers to it as the flesh versus faith, or flesh versus the spirit. The Jewish people never got into their heads the idea that God was spirit and wanted to have a relationship with each of mankind on a personal basis. 
It was always, God was up there in the heavens, and mankind was down here, and never the two should meet. Well, that's not the case. The whole purpose of God's plan of salvation is to work out a way for mankind to eventually return to the Father. But, because of free will, we have the right to make choices. And God says, and you'll read this, well, if you go to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, where it it took uh, about seven chapters to record Moses' last words. Can you imagine a dying man spending seven chapters of verbiage uh, to get across his life? No, 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 no. All right. But nevertheless, it's choose life or choose death. Spiritual death is what they're talking about. Uh, uh, And we constantly have to keep in mind that the Jewish people never got this into their heads. But they had no way to compare. They had no uh, theology, you might say, uh, to help them develop an idea of the spirit. And for those educated Pharisees and scribes who really didn't come into prominence um, until much, much later in the time period between Moses and Christ, uh, they wanted to protect their jobs, their security, uh, their position, and therefore they didn't teach the people about that either. So you can't blame Jewish people in general of this time period uh, for the ignorance uh, of not being able to understand a lot of the things that we take for granted. The same way with the prohibition of eating blood. I think we went through this at another meeting. Blood carries many of the life-giving and yet the life-harming bacteria or germs or whatever else. Uh, And therefore, Moses just put a prohibition of eating any blood, whether it be human or animal blood, uh, because of the problems that blood carries. And then, of course, from that, I uh, grew up in a uh, superstition, you might say, that if you ate the blood of an animal, you would become like that animal. Well, that, of course, was strictly superstition, but to people who didn't know any better, didn't have any way to compare or to understand, that became a reality. Well, Jesus took that reality and used it when he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life in you. And of course, what he wanted them to do was to become like him, which was part of that superstition idea. Remember, Catholicism doesn't have as many rules as you might think. Most of them are statements of belief. The whole idea of canon law 
really is not so much laws, but as statements of belief. And if you believe them, truly want to believe them, and truly want to follow the laws or the rules or the ideas of teachings of Christ, then you will observe them, but not as laws. Observe them because this is the way God wants you to behave. And I think one of the lessons that we can see today in reading the book of Joshua, the whole idea of obedience, obedience to God and his will regarding his implementation of his plan of salvation and how we fit into it. That's the overall message that we should get out of this whole book of Joshua, is obedience to the will of God. So let's get into the whole idea of the book of Joshua. First, we have to go to the death of Moses, which is not in the book of Joshua, except for a very brief mention right in the first part. You really have to go to the last two or three chapters of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, it's interesting that Deuteronomy was written long after the book of Joshua. Um, But nevertheless, uh, that's sometimes the way you have to read something at the end of a book in order to understand something uh, that's the beginning of the next book. But Joshua follows really the book of Exodus and Joshua the person follows the leadership of Moses. He was with Moses most of the time that Moses was a leader of the Jewish people while they were wandering in the desert. Now, before they get to the promised land, they are still on the east side of the Jordan, uh, opposite Jericho, and God takes Moses up to Mount Nebo to show him all the land that he is going to return to the uh, Jewish people. Remember, this is the same land that he gave to Abraham 500 or so years before. And because of the uh, drought and so forth, uh, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and his family migrated to Egypt and spent three or four hundred years there. It is interesting, let me digress for a minute. It is interesting that there are no records of whatsoever in the ancient history of Egypt of the Jewish people ever being there to the Babylonian captivity was another period where we will be talking about most of that today and next week. Uh, Most of the laws were beginning to be developed and uh, but they were all orally transmitted. They still didn't have any writing. Joshua, Deuteronomy, or any of them. 
but the oral histories were then handed down. That was part of their culture. It wasn't until after David or Solomon in the 10th, the 11th or the 10th century BC that these histories began to be written down. But they were not written down as scripture, holy scripture. They were written down as histories in order to transmit them in some written form to future generations. It wasn't until the 5th century B.C. that these histories were brought together into the form we have them today. So the Torah could not have been written and put together in the form we have today much before the 5th century B.C. And yet the Jewish people staked their life on that. Well, what about the people for a thousand years before that? Oh, yes. Yes, by all means. The question was, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, were there any of the Old Testament books? Yes, there was. Primarily the book of uh, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And it's interestingly... uh, It's interesting that there is a museum in Israel, in Jerusalem, called the Museum of the Book. And it contains many of the original Dead Sea Scrolls. Not all, but many of them. All right, we have no idea of what is all. All right, because they were found over a period of years beginning in 1947. Um, But in that museum, they have a complete set of the writings of the prophet uh, Isaiah. And it's interesting that Isaiah is the one prophet that the Jewish people do not want to observe. Because it condemns them, particularly, and it talks about the Messiah in specifics, in chapter 53 of Isaiah, uh, the suffering servant, it's called, and they didn't want to hear that. So they ignored it. But yet, it becomes the focal point, the main focal point of that particular museum. Very interesting in a way. It's sort of a paradox. Okay. But we're getting off of our, our subject matter for today. After Moses dies, well, let me back up. When God takes Moses up to Mount Nebo and shows him all of these lands, he said, this is what I will give the Hebrew people and bring them back to these lands. Because remember, it was Abraham's family that occupied these lands 500 years before. When I say 500 years, don't hold me right to it because that's approximate. We have no way of knowing because there were no calendars in those days. All right. But he tells Moses that he will not be able to enter the promised land. Now, these are words that people have put into the mouth of God. 
we have no way of knowing exactly what God said to Moses because God and Moses are not here to tell us. So we have to go simply by the words that were put there to record an event. But many people think that because Moses, along with the rest of the Jewish people, kind of doubted God when God told him to strike a certain rock and water would come, which it did. But there was some doubt. Well, you know, if I told you to go out and uh, strike that rock out there and a flower would blossom, what would you think? <laughs> He's nuts. Well, all right. So it would be natural for people to doubt, would it not? Uh, God's not going to hold you because you doubted. Honest doubt is not a sin. Honest doubt is part of being human. All right. So, the poor guy, Moses, was roughly 120 years old. How much longer do you expect him to live, you know? And so, God, in his infinite wisdom, is transferring the responsibility of leading the Jewish people to somebody much younger. All right. So, we know that Moses didn't go to hell, as a lot of people think, because he was part of the great apparition we call the transfiguration of Christ, where Moses and Elijah appear to Christ discussing the future of Christ's life, not the future of humanity, but the future of Jesus Christ and what he had have to go through. Uh -huh. <clears throat> So we know that because of that particular scene in one of the Gospels, that Moses must be in heaven with God. And certainly his long, uh, faithful life and all that he went through deserves heaven, at least in my opinion. Okay, so the reason, the Leadership now of the Jewish people is being transferred to Joshua. The whole book of Joshua is interesting and it is sort of a transitional book from one important leader, Moses, to the next very important leader who will be Samuel, which we will talk about next week. All right. But the book of Joshua and of Judges are what we would call transitional books from one phase to another. Joshua finally took the people over to the promised land, crossing the Jordan in the same way that the Jewish people crossed the Red Sea in their escape from Egypt 40 years before. And interesting, if you go to, um, as I say right here, in your letter, the book of Joshua, chapter 4, verses 19, it states that the crossing was completed on the tenth day of the month of Nisan, which was a Babylonian 
uh, name for that time period. The Hebrew name was uh, Abib, A-B-I-B-D, I believe it is. And compare that with Exodus 12, chapter 12, verse 3, and it will show you that both uh, of these events, that is, release from Egypt and the return later uh, into the promised land, both happened on Passover, which means that they were controlled really by Jesus Christ, by, by God himself. Now, they crossed over, and of course the first encounter is with the people of the walled city of Jericho. And there's a whole interesting story uh, there uh, about Jericho and surrounding or marching around the walls of Jericho with the Ark of the Covenant. And doing it, chanting and singing and so forth. And on the seventh day, they march around Jericho seven times and then give give a great shout and the walls of Jericho tumble down. And the people there. Now, you got to take this whole idea of the conquest of the land of Canaan, which is the ancient... Palestinian name for the land of Israel. You got to take that with sort of a grain of salt, you might say. Not, it is not as bloody probably as it appears. Most of the Jewish people entered this land and settled because remember, there was no uh, boundaries or structures that were firm and recognized by everybody. And so most of these people were nomads. And they would move from place to place. And so the people moving, the Hebrew people moving into the promised land or returning to the promised land that they had been driven out by famine nearly 500 years before, uh, would not be a new thing. And they probably just absorbed the people that were already there. But the writers of this book uh, like to embellish and like to make their side of the story far uh, stronger in various ways than probably was really there. So we get all of these stories of uh, slaughter of this town and slaughter of that town, etc., etc. Well, I don't think God really wanted all of that. And I think absorbing these people into their culture uh, was probably the more prominent way of doing things. Anyways, Joshua brings the people that had survived the trek of 40 years through the desert into the promised land. And of course, it's interesting how they were settled by tribe. Now, you might wonder, well, why? 
Well, that was part of their culture, but that was also part of God's plan of salvation. Remember, they are still growing, going through a formative uh, time period of still forming these people into a nation. And this is going to go on for another couple hundred years before we finally get into uh, our subject for next week, which will be the demand for a king. So you have Joshua leading these people and being their leader for a number of years while they are not only being uh, developed as a nation, but being settled back into the promised land, each in its own territory. Now, did anyone find anything interesting, uh, either in the map I gave you this morning, where I put the little boxes around the individual uh, tribes? But have you noticed anything unusual? First of all, you would have to know who the 12 tribes were in order to notice this unusual. Yes, ma'am. All right, that's part of it. And there's no land given to Levi and Joseph. All right? Okay. We have... I'm sorry? That's right. Uh, you have 12 sons. All right? But Levi didn't get one because he and his family and all of the tribe of Levi were designated as priest servants to all of the others, all of the other tribes. And they were to live among all of the other tribes. I think the book of Joshua goes into uh, a lot of discussion on that. Also, Joseph, because Joseph married outside of the Jewish population, he married an Egyptian woman. Therefore, he was not given any land. But his two sons were Ephraim and Manasseh. So, you still end up with 12. Okay? And that is, if you count those little boxes that I put in there, you will see that there is 12. Now, there's another little problem here. If you look right in dead center, you'll see the word Manasseh. But if you look up to the upper right quarter, you'll see the word Manasseh again. That is part of, well, that is one of the sons of Joseph. That was a very unwieldy um, son and much of his family took and remained uh, faithful to the Egyptian way of doing things. And they wanted to settle on the 
eastern side of the Jordan. Remember, Israel was on both sides of the Jordan at that time period. It went all the way from the Mediterranean Sea over to the uh, Euphrates River. Euphrates River is all the way over in Iran today, in Iraq. So, Manasseh was split into two parts. Eventually, the part that was on the eastern side returned, but that was at a later date. You have the same kind of thing with Dan. Dan is in the bottom, uh, well, just slightly to the uh, left of center. Then you have Dan way, way up in the upper part, upper right-hand corner. Right? You have a similar problem there where the tribe of Dan was split into two. Part of it was on the eastern side and part was on the western side. Both of those returned at a later date. So you have a lot of Now, those are really not important things, but people have asked me over the years, why, why, why? And so uh, we don't always have a strong logical answer, but nevertheless, uh, we have some answer. Tribe had to have a homicide note or something like that. Well, uh, they had to have a refuge. Uh, a sanctuary. Yeah, I had to stop and think of the word. Uh, you know, like San Francisco uh, recently, um, they had to have a sanctuary, a city of sanctuary, you might say. And this is where. If somebody was guilty of killing another person, but not intentionally, accidentally. Now, I don't know exactly what all the conditions would be, uh, because that's not spelled out. But if a person who uh, accidentally was responsible for killing somebody, he could go to uh, a city of sanctuary and be protected. Okay. Um, that didn't last very long, I'll tell you. Well, I often wondered, you know, because it doesn't give any examples. Um, So, um, I often wondered about that myself. It's not worth pursuing. Did you notice that crossing the uh, Jordan, it was done in the same way that crossing the Red Sea was done, where it was struck by the staff of Joshua, and the waters parted so that they could cross over on dry land. That is uh, mentioned in the Psalm 114, 
which is part of the Jewish Seder ceremony. But it's interesting that the Jewish people celebrate uh, the escape from Egypt and the return to uh, the promised land, but they do not celebrate the escape or the release from Babylon in the 6th century. And you don't know why. They were in Egypt for their own reasons because God wanted them to be. And they were there as guests in the beginning. They're turning into uh, becoming slaves later on uh, was also part of God's plan of salvation. The exile in Babylon was due to their own sin. They didn't recognize in the beginning as to why they were uh, conquered by the Babylonians and carted off uh, to Babylon as slaves. Uh, But eventually they got to understand that it was because of their own sin and it was punishment. Therefore, when they were released, they did not celebrate that because they would be celebrating something that was not in their faith. They would only (coughs) remind people of their own sins. And so it's interesting that they kind of looked out for themselves. Now, another thing that's important, really, is the whole idea of renewing the covenant. The whole idea of the covenant that was made first with Abraham, which included land, descendants, and protection, which God fulfilled by giving Abraham the promised land. He gave him descendants through Isaac. And he gave them protection. The covenant was renewed with Moses, who gave them, again, the freedom of protection, uh, the Ten Commandments for structure, and so forth. Now, it is being renewed again uh, through Joshua. It is the same covenant There is no change. The whole idea of God being their God and wanting no other gods among them is really the theme that is being fulfilled or or made obvious here. Excuse me. Is there any questions so far? I want to go over to uh, in chapter 22 it talks about those uh, tribes that settled east of the Jordan and are now being brought back onto the western side of the Jordan. But Israel uh, was actually actually on both sides of the Jordan 
for centuries. Excuse, excuse me for just delaying here. If you go to uh, chapter 24, the renewal of the covenant towards the end of that chapter and the death of Joshua. Joshua only takes one full chapter to give his final farewell, but uh, whereas whereas Moses took seven chapters, you know. um, And I think this is kind of interesting. If you go down to verse 13, it says, I gave you a land. This is... God speaking to Joshua and the people through Joshua. I gave you a land which you did not till and cities which you did not build to dwell in. You have eaten the vineyards and the olive groves which you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him completely and sincerely. Cast out the gods your fathers served uh, beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. If it does not please you to serve the Lord, decide today whom you will serve. The gods your father served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose country you are dwelling. But as for me and my household, this is Joshua speaking, we will serve the Lord. But the people answered, far be it from us. To forsake the Lord for the service of other gods. Now, you know, the word gods in this case doesn't mean gods in the way we think of God. They meant images uh, of human beings, but also they worship the sun and the moon and the stars and uh, animals and all kinds of things. Um, And God is trying to bring these people back into the idea of worshiping the one true God. For it was the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, out of a state of slavery. He performed those great miracles before our eyes and protected us along our entire journey and among all the peoples through whom we passed. At our approach, the Lord drove out all the peoples, including the Amorites who dwelt in their land. And therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Joshua in turn said to the people, You may not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God who will not forgive your your transgressions or your sins. If after the good he has done for you, you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, he will do evil to you and destroy you. But the people answered, we will serve the Lord. Joshua therefore said to the people, you are your own witnesses that you have chosen to serve the Lord. And they replied, we are indeed. The whole idea there is 
And you can't blame these people uh, as much as we would blame them under today's conditions because they didn't have the rulers, the leaders that really gave them good example. The leaders were just as bad, if not worse, because they knew better. And we're talking about the various judges that were put in place over the number of years here. Uh, Not just judges, not just uh, uh, Joshua, but all the judges that followed him. There were 12 of those judges. The last of them was Samuel. And I want to get into a little bit of this because we're jumping ahead, actually, of the schedule that I had originally uh, set up. But I think it is more important. This was the original schedule. I think we're going to jump a little bit ahead of this um, because the more advanced we get into the time period, uh, the more details we're going to encounter. And the whole idea of the first book of Samuel is extremely interesting and important particularly the demand for a king after the period of the judges. The only one that was is really important, well, two. Uh, Gideon is very important, and Samson. Of course, you have the Samson and Delilah story, of which there's been many movies made and all that kind of thing. And they're often held up as an example of, um, well, I won't go over that. Uh, Those are interesting stories. I I recommend that you you read them. But they're not really important to the whole concept of what we're trying to get across. And that is the relationship of Judaism to Christianity. But the next part is, remember, God was their king for all of these years. And we're talking seven or eight hundred years now. And we're getting close to the time of uh, the monarchy, which we will start next week. But I want to caution you to Read carefully the first book of Samuel um, for our discussion next week. You can skip over some of the things that are here. Uh, The whole book of uh, Judges is interesting, but like I said, uh, not overly important to our objective here. But the first book of Samuel, we're going to skip over the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is interesting, but it is a story. It is not history, even though some of the events in it are historical. It is a, as we would call today, a historical novel. The details are not history. So we're going to skip over the book of Ruth. But... First Samuel 
is really important because it begins our um, study of the Jewish monarchy. The Jewish monarchy, particularly the time of David and Samuel, is often called the golden age of Judaism. And therefore, be very careful and really understand. Uh, beginning with chapter 5, you have the whole story of how the Ark of the Covenant was used more or less as a shield or a weapon uh, in the battles that the Israelites encountered in the early days. Is there any questions? Yes. They were leaders. They were not uh, judges as we would think today. Uh, they were leaders. Yes. Yes. Um, they were pretty much uh, in a lesser position of Joshua. Joshua was the primary leader over all of the Israelites uh, at the time of the crossing into the promised land or returning to the promised land. Uh, but that became unwieldy for one person and therefore uh, Joshua and God um, developed this idea of judges. All right. In a way, uh, yes, and that's the comparison that I made here. Uh, they were over a certain group of people and a certain territory. But it did not extend to all of the people and all of the land. <coughs> Excuse me. Yes. Just going back to Joshua. So I'm reading through Joshua. Were there two Joshuas? No. Why? It keeps referring to Joshua, the son of Nun. And it does. And it does. About seven times in the book, it refers to Joshua, son of Nun. Uh, no, that's that's the one and only. Okay, yeah. There was none other. I'll leave that one alone. <laughs> You said seven to eight hundred years, that was from Joshua to Samuel? No, that was from Abraham. Abraham? Yeah, to Sam, Samuel. Yeah. yeah. I had, uh, when I was reading about uh, uh, the conquest, there were several of the tribes that got land, and, uh, and I'll just read you the one <coughs> sentence, uh, because this was... Uh, uh, Joshua 16, 10, it says, But they did not drive out the Canaanites living in a gazer who lived on within Ephraim to the present day, though they have been impressed as laborers. So they they didn't kill everybody. No. They just they, they assimilated some of the people as just not exactly as part of their nation, but subjected to them. Uh, 
That's right. Slaves. They were all well, not so much. They just absorbed them in in many different ways. Well, I think it goes on to say that they just continued to do what they did before. Like they were, whatever it was that they were doing, that's what they did afterwards. Yeah. Like if they were shepherds they, or whatever it was. That's right. They just, wow. in many cases, they just probably ignored them and, oh. you know, they were absorbed into uh, the nation of Israel. Yeah. Uh, no, it wasn't probably as near as bloody as it kind of leads us to believe. Well, that, I had a problem reconciling myself to God and said, thou shalt not kill. And here they're going through. Yeah. And, and women and children and slaughtering. And I said, now wait a second. No. A, you know, God could have killed them through a storm as opposed to... You know, we're, we're not supposed to kill each other or anything. That's what I had in trouble. Yeah. No, yeah. I don't believe much of that happened. Some, yes. Uh, there is an interesting book called Field of Blood by Kathleen Norris, a uh, very prominent current religious writer. And she talks about this time period, uh, that it was a period uh of either protect yourself or get run over. And so there was a lot of battle going on all over uh, because that was sort of the survival of the fittest, you might say. Uh, so yes, there was uh, battles, um, particularly when people would move in to a territory that they hadn't been before and just sort of take over. You're going to run into opposition. Uh, but we don't know how much slaughtering really went on. And my gut feel is this is a lot of boasting on the part of the writers <coughs> rather than reality. Field of Blood yeah, by Kathleen Norris. Yeah. Okay, any other questions? All right. Oh my goodness, we got too much time here. You know. Yes. Um, the fact that these people were absorbed into their community was also part of their downfall, right? Because they started intermarrying, worshiping the other god. Yes. So that was kind of a risky thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's part of why God really wanted them to, you know, eliminate the people that were there. The question was, by assimilating the people that were there, rather than eliminating them, by assimilating them, they also absorbed their beliefs, their worshipping foreign gods and that kind of thing, which probably did happen. But you got to remember, these people didn't have the same understanding and concept of God that we had. To them, God was somebody to be feared. So the whole idea of love of God, a love of a lovable God, didn't exist. And you can't blame them in a way. Their idea of God was somebody that would strike you dead rather than ask you uh, to do it again or whatever. You know. Um, their example was what they saw on the top 
of the mountaintops when uh, Moses would go up there. Lightning and thunder and smoke and fire and all kinds of trumpet noises, etc. Well, that would put the fear of God into anybody. Pardon the expression. Um, and that was the fear that they came away with. And uh, as it said in the last part of the book that we read last week, uh, when Moses came down, uh, he told the people what God had said. And they said, fine, we'll do whatever you tell us, but we don't want anything to do with him. You you be our intermediary. Uh, and that concept lasted with the Jewish people for hundreds of years. He was somebody to be feared. And so the whole idea of uh, working with God was out of fear rather than love. Jesus wanted to change that and did. And the whole idea of faith was instilled in us through the Holy Spirit through the first Pentecost and through our baptism. So you got to see it from a different point of view. Um, you can't blame the Jewish people, particularly at this time period. Now, later on, well, that's another story. And we'll see that as we go on, particularly next week, when they demand for a king. through the Levites. The Levite tribe was to live among all of the other tribes as God's mouthpiece to those other tribes. Each, each priest in each area would get the message from God or they would meet together? Or, uh, I mean, we really don't know. Yeah. We really don't know. That. No. Uh, see, Judaism has no central creed. Never did and still doesn't except the Ten Commandments. And out of that developed all of these uh, laws, uh, but they have very little to do with truly honoring God. Most of them are cultural things uh, and not really meant to honor God alone. It's unfortunate. But if you if you um, ever get a, a listing, and I've not been able to find a true simplified listing of what the 613 laws are, <clears throat> I just know, I remember my wife telling me that she lived across the street from a Jewish family. And on their high holy days, they would have somebody come over to her house and ask, uh, her mother or her older sisters, if they would come over and light the fire in that house, the Jewish house, because they were not allowed to do that uh, on high holy days. Yeah. 
you know, that simple thing as something that is as necessary as just keeping warm or needing a fire to cook. They couldn't do that. Yeah. Um, now, what has that got to do with honoring God? No. Uh, yes, Rita. <laughs> That's right, and they wanted somebody that they could see and feel and touch and, and uh, you know, hold. That's right. Uh, this idea of worshiping somebody that was invisible and was up there somewheres, uh, and that's, of course, when we talk about heaven, we always think of heaven as up there, right? Everyone, I think, well, heaven isn't just up there, it's all over. Uh, because heaven is really a relationship more than a place. Heaven is not a place as we think of a place. Heaven is a relationship with God. Uh, and, and Rita is right. Uh, they couldn't think of that because they were not a faith-based religion. Theirs was strictly a physical religion and not a faith base. And that is why we should be so grateful for the understanding of who God is and the fact that God really wants a relationship with each of us on a personal basis. So how many of you have a personal, I don't want hands or anything, how many of you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ or God through Christ or with the Father directly or with the Holy Spirit. It's important that you start thinking about it if you don't because that is what our faith is all about. The relationship with God that we carry out through the church. Forget about all the laws that you have learned from Sister So-and-so uh, in, in Catholic schools uh, or CCD or whatever it might have been. That is not, the laws are not that important. They are ways to honor God. But you honor God, first of all, by giving him your attention, your devotion, your sincerity, and humility. That's what faith is all about. <clears throat> I have such a difficult time with certain people who talk about, I'm a good Catholic, I go to church every Sunday. Well, just going to church every Sunday doesn't make you a good Catholic or a good Christian. It is following what God is asking you to do. Well, I don't know what God is asking me to do. I never met him. <laughs> well, that's what prayer is all about. You really want to. And unfortunately, if you really got a truthful answer from a lot of people, a lot of Catholics, they would say, I just don't know. And that's unfortunate. Because to many Catholics, it's just becoming 
a formality of a nice thing to do on Sunday or my wife dragged me there or my mother made me go and therefore I'm going but I don't know why. And you know, for any of you who are Eucharistic ministers, I think you may have observed a lot of people who will come up and receive the sacred body of Christ in the form of the host, pop it in their mouth and never give another thought to what they just did. How sad. Do you ever greet a very close uh, friend or relative or neighbor at your front door without just opening the door and motioning them to come in but don't say hello, how are you or whatever? No. A lot of people, well, I would say most people, when they greet somebody at the door, it's hello, how are you, you know, haven't seen you for a while, or, or some form of greeting. You do that when you receive the host. Uh, if that is what you did, if you thought about that is what just happened, but I, <clears throat> yeah. But but see, those are formalities. The, there, it helps you, yes. But you've got to take it internally into the mind and the heart. And if it doesn't get any further than the mouth. Yeah. But don't you think that's part of a lot of the reasons uh, Catholics today don't have that same kind of thing? Well, that's, that's a possibility. Yes. Yeah, and pretty pretty bad singing too. Yeah, you're right. But and and I there's a lot of ways that can contribute to our reverence, our devotion. But remember, it's got to start in the mind and the heart, not just in the outward formalities. Yes. Yes. We have far, far more distractions today than we ever did in the past. You were speaking about how it's up to us to develop a relationship and that just saying you're Catholic and going to church is not enough kind of thing. Um, having been a nurse, I, or I guess still am, but, um, the common, you know, when you go to the hospital and they ask you religion, if you just say NPC, they know exactly you mean non-practical. And that's really sad. 
Yes. That it's so well known there's an abbreviation for it. Yeah. I'm practicing Catholic, MPC. <laughs> Uh, that that is sad. That is sad. But they say the lar- second largest religion, the largest religion on earth is Catholicism, or Christianity, I should say. The second largest is fallen away, or not practicing Catholics, which is very very unfortunate. Uh, for a variety of reasons, but I don't want to get into the reasons there. Let us hope that we are not following suit. If you are here, you are here because <clears throat> you want to learn. You want to understand. And that's what my objective is. Helping you to understand your faith, where it came from, and what it means. But if it is not coming, if you're, it's not getting into the mind and the heart, then you're wasting time. Yes, Jean? Amen. <laughs> yes, yes, how well we know. Uh, for those who teach uh, uh, faith formation or CCD as it used to be called, you're right. After confirmation, you rarely see them uh, going on beyond that. And again, they think formality and milestones is sufficient. That's all external. That's what the Jewish people did and are still doing. Everything is external. It is not coming from the mind and the heart. Now, I'm not talking about generosity. You have, you couldn't find a, uh, more generous people than the Jewish people, but most of their generosity is focused on their own group of people. Alright? They still have that inexclusive idea of who the Jewish people are, and to the extent of where their generosity goes. It is still within the Jewish people. Yes, Justin? Quick question. MPC. Non-practicing Catholics. Does that mean they're pro-abortion and practicing Catholics is pro-life? <laughs> <laughs> not, not necessarily. <laughs> not necessarily. I totally agree. I totally agree, but uh, as you know, that isn't always the case. Wait, 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 please. Yeah, well, yes, yeah, Laurel, Laurel's statement is, is very common these days. When people are asked their faith, as Laurel just said, 
many people will say that they are Catholic, but, you know, you have Catholics who practice this much or Catholics that practice that much. They all will say they're Catholic. And it is not up to us to make judgments. But it is up to you because you want... I always say that heaven is like a a huge, huge church. You want to be just inside the back door or do you want to be way up in front uh, where all the action is going on? All right? When you get there. And that depends on how you have really honored God through love and fulfilling your role in his plan of salvation. That's what this course is all about. How God's plan of salvation started with the Jewish people. And for a while they were saying, oh, yes, yes, Lord, we'll do anything and everything you say. Well, we're going to do it our way. And unfortunately, that wasn't God's way. And so he left them to follow their own designs, as it says in uh, Psalm 81. And Christianity has picked up with the development of the Holy Spirit, the giving us of the Holy Spirit to the first Pentecost. So, please, I really encourage each and every one of you to spend time with the Holy Spirit in prayer, asking him to help you to understand what Catholicism is all about and what he is asking or what God is asking you to do as your little contribution to his plan of salvation. With that, let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the many graces and blessings that you have given us, not only through the study of Holy Scripture, but a better understanding of where Catholicism comes from or came from. Help us then not to make the same mistakes as the Jewish people, because you have given us so much more than you gave them. And you have given us the faith through your life, death, and resurrection, the gift of faith, that is, through your life, death, and resurrection, and through the Catholic Church. So help us then to develop our understanding of what that faith is, and then to apply it to our language and our actions every moment of the day. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.